on this episode of The End of Tourism. This is the life now. This is a cultural violence that is accepted now. And I, I would say uh, a good part of that is due to the idea that tourism is helping somehow, but it's not helping. As the uh, dominant economic industry for Hawaii, it's not really uh, been of any benefit to Hawaiians. It's accepted, right? And we just go along with it, right? Okay, that's, that's what's happened with tourism. But to address cultural violence in a society or in a country, you got to look at the things that are like pillars holding up that cultural violence. And you just got to chip away at those pillars until that cultural violence falls. Yeah. Welcome to the end of tourism, a podcast about wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. For some, tourism can entail learning, freedom, or financial survival. For others, it means the loss of culture, land, and lineage. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories and consequences of modern travel. They are dispatches from the resistance. Our guest today is Dr. Kahu Kaleo Patterson, a Hawaiian kahu or priest, a sensei of the Kaito Gako martial arts, and a local elder. He is a former peace studies professor at the University of Hawaii Manoa Matsunaga Institute of Peace, as well as the Myron B. Thompson School of Social Work. Kaleo holds a doctorate of ministry as well as a master's in theology. He comes from an ancient warrior line of chiefs related to Kamehameha the Great. He is the founding president of the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. He has traveled internationally as a human rights activist and has been a delegate to many United Nations assemblies and forums. Kaleo also works in and directs local prison rehabilitation programs as well as food outreach programs, feeding the local community. Welcome to the end of tourism. Kahu Kaleo Patterson. End of tourism, yeah. Could you uh, tell our listeners and myself where you find yourself today, what the world looks like for you, where you are? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, we're, uh, I've got a, an uptick in COVID-19 cases in Hawaii. And uh, numbers are getting very high. So there's been another shutdown. And, uh, you know, many of us think that the, the, the travel and the tourism industry is helping to feed into that again. And so there's always uh, an impact when we uh, talk about uh, tourism. And uh, even with this pandemic, uh, we're seeing impact. We're seeing government catering uh, to the economics of uh, Tourism, of course, mil mil militarization is the other big industry in Hawaii. And the way that both those industries are being seen in light of pandemic and the, the benefits, uh, the treatment that those industries get is very problematic, we think. But other than that, I'm a priest in a small church in the middle of the island, a place called Waihiwa, in an old plantation community. And we've been doing a, a lot of... Uh, food distribution in the community, you know, maybe five to 6,000 uh, individuals a month uh, being served. Six times a month, we're uh, doing a food distribution. A lot of people hungry and a lot of families in need, people with limited resources. 
And so it's been like that for this last year. So we're kind of coming to the end of a year and we've had about a hundred volunteers and over a dozen uh, churches and organizations that have partnered in to try to provide some uh, hope, some relief for families in a couple of the communities surrounding Wahiwa and Wahiwa itself. And so it's been great to work with uh, the community and to develop partnerships and uh, to do things together. That's been very exciting for some of us, the ability to connect with uh, people that uh, we otherwise wouldn't really uh, do things with. But this pandemic has brought the hope of a new community working mm-hmm. together to take care of the needs of the poor and uh, those who are not healthy or at risk right now. And that kind of organizing, uh, grassroots organizing, uh, when, when you have people working together, helps to build the community helps to create the possibilities of other ways of working together and learning about the issues. And then we've got the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. We've been working with various Hawaiian groups, sovereignty groups, and and churches on apologies and reconciliations. Hmm. That's been a a longstanding project with us. And that began with the United Churches of Christ uh, big apology in 1993 and that we were part of and we've been tracking the United Churches of Christ all this time. At that time, our tourism conference, the um, negative impact of tourism in Hawaii, was actually the impetus that led us to look at the churches more in terms of an apology, Mm. you know, for the history of Hawaii. So out of a tourism conference came a lot of education related to the the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and the United Churches of Christ was also asked to take on tourism at that time. This was in 1989, back in those days. The churches were surprisingly uh, very concerned and involved in the impact of tourism on in local communities indigenous communities, places like Germany, oddly enough, was, was very, very close to us and, and brought us into Berlin one year to speak at the largest uh, tourism gathering. Every year there's the ITB in Berlin, the International Tourism Business Exchange, and all the cheerleaders of tourism gathered there. And we, I was invited to give a, a paper on tourism and human rights and the German churches actually flew us in and brought another guy, Cecil Regenda from Malaysia, famous poet, tourism poet, and uh, a good friend of Haunani K. Trask here in Hawaii, who just passed away a few months ago. She was a real advocate for, um, you know, looking at tourism and, and a real strong voice. And uh, a lot of people uh, still remember her and her activism in regards to tourism. So at at, at the moment, we were also Pacific Justice and Reconciliation uh, Center has not only worked with the United Churches of Christ here in Hawaii on apology and redress. We were also successful in uh, having some redress come forward. In the last five or six years, the United Methodist Church here in Hawaii has also uh, worked on an apology to Native Hawaiians for their complicity in the armed overthrow of Hawaii. And this is 
you know, it, it's a great resolution. And they're hoping that in another year, they'll be able to push that uh, resolution to the national level. We have bishops that are supporting our resolution. And an apology to Native Hawaiians that outlines the United Methodist complicity with that overthrow. Just last month, the United Churches of Christ, again, uh, the Hawaiian churches this time drafted a resolution and it was passed by the Hawaiian Churches Association and it was accepted by national. 70% of the delegates of the General Synod of the United Churches of Christ accepted this resolution, which is titled Urging the End to the 128-Year War Between the United States and Hawaii. And, you know, it stirred quite a bit of controversy here in Hawaii, and we're kind of working through that, which is a good thing. Good thing to have controversy every once in a while. But working through that and pushing all of the organizations to, to read the resolution, sign on, and that's the grind now. That's the work of moving everybody on this educational effort now. But that uh, resolution uh, will mean a lot to people who have been working on uh, liberating Hawaii, freeing Hawaii from its oppressive occupied status. Uh, so all of that kind of ties in with tourism. You know, the military in the old days, we would say that the tourism comes out of the infrastructure that was created for World War II, right? The big airports, the big bombers, uh, uh, you know, the military needing to transport people all over the world. It's a good study to kind of go down that track and to see how that infrastructure and maybe even the defense contractors uh, began to invest in mass travel, global tourism, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so during a time of peace, we, we see tourism uh, developed and being touted as a way to promote peace. But basically, tourism is all about making money. A few people you know, these elite multinational corporations making a lot of money, right? It's not, it's nothing about international peace there, right? I hope some of these things are still alive. People are still talking about some of these these things. Now, the churches, yeah, churches were very involved in the early days. And uh, Pacific Island communities, grassroots communities, had very strong voices. We learned a lot from the Pacific Island communities and uh, the Aborigines about the exploitation of indigenous people and, and communities that, as a result of global tourism descending and acquiring land and, and, and developing hotels. And, you know, we've studied the impact that these developments have had on communities and cultures and, and peoples and the great changes that, that would occur, not for the, for the good, but for, for the worse. And so that's the story uh, that we've been documenting here in Hawaii as well. In our tourism declaration in August of 1989, you know, in the preamble, there's some strong words that the fragile environment of Hawaii and its people is tremendously impacted by tourism. Mm. And we had churches from all over the world, the World Council of Churches, Catholic Church. That's a good document. So... And it's got some really great statements on tourism. I was the co-chair of that conference with Haunani K. Trask. And that conference created the organization that became the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. Wow. For all those years, since 1989, 
we really tried to dig into the tourism industry and to do a good writer analysis. We partnered with the Center for Third World Tourism in Bangkok. I was I was a part of that organization, the board of directors, and we had a, a bunch of meetings all over the place. And we we had people coming into Hawaii for about ten years after that, and there was just a lot of good work that that went on. Part of the concern was the control of the the WTO, World Trade Organization, the World Banks, and uh, multinational corporations. That analysis is very important. I'm sure you folks have looked at some of that. That's some of the things that uh, we've, we've done in the past. So in 1989, that was the golden age of tourism development in Hawaii. A lot of hotels were built during those times. And we, we went up against a lot of bulldozers, uh, projects, and uh, protests. You know, so that went on for a while in those days, but you got to have good organizing and be able to sustain that kind of work. Over the years, you know, the next generation is coming up. You really got to spend time uh, educating the, the next generations that are coming up. And uh, there's still some good uh, work being done. I, I heard today, I didn't go to church today. I took a, a day off, but some of my members, I, they said, oh, we're, we're not coming to church today. I said, oh, that's good because I'm not going to church either. And I said, where are you guys going? I said, we're going to the North Shore and we're going to protest a tourism group that's messing with our turtles, right? Wow. <laughs> Without turtles in Haleiwa or somewhere on the North Shore. So there's always something going on, yeah, related to it. I better stop there and let you ask some questions because I like to really try to address what you're working on. Sure. No, th thank you for that uh, incredible introduction. I think that these are definitely strange times and uh, these are conversations that people are being drawn to at the moment because of the circumstances uh, of the industry, of the world, and to know that there's people like yourself and your colleague recently passed that people can look to for not just examples, but leadership. And there was something... I read recently in a great book called Joyful Militancy, and it was saying how when the last 10 or 20 years in North America, or at least Anglo-North America, that so much of a sense of solidarity and mutual aid, the things that you described a little earlier that you're involved in on the grassroots level there, have largely been forgotten because the history of these things has been forgotten which is to say that people imagine themselves as being somewhat alone generationally in these struggles, young people especially. So I think it's uh, incredibly important the work uh, that you're doing and especially as a leader and elder and kahu in the place that, that you live. So in 1989, you among your colleagues drafted and uh, published the Hawaii Declaration on Tourism, right? Some four years later, in 1993, you released an essay entitled, All is Not Well in Paradise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that essay, uh, you wrote about three major impacts of tourism in Hawaii. One, that it produces minimal economic benefit for Hawaiians. Two, that tourism amounts to a cultural invasion of the islands. And three, 
that tourism contributes to the destruction of land and environment mm. there. Now, if you were asked to rewrite this essay to reflect the current times, would these three points remain a part of your writing? And would there be any others added to the major impacts of tourism there? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think our 30th anniversary has come up. Mm. And, uh, you know, when we looked at that declaration, reviewed it again, we found that things had really moved along quite a bit, but that there was much more that needed to be done and that we had lost some ground or had gone backwards on some of those things. Uh, so this may not be a good thing, but there were no Hawaiian general managers of hotels in Hawaii back in those days. I mean, that was something that you could easily count, right? It's zero, zero. Wow. Wow. Most of the uh, Hilton, the, the Marriott's, you know, all the, the big name hotels, you know, most of the general managers were either uh, white or, or Asian, right? Or, or European, right? And, uh, you know, wow. of course, multinational corporations uh, are predominantly not from Hawaii, right? I mean, they're just transnational corporations. Right. And so there was a big push because a lot of Hawaiians work in the industry. There was a big push and we supported the uh, idea of the um, Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association to kind of look at the equity and uh, employment in the tourism industry. And we considered that would be a good thing for Hawaiians to be more involved in, in the leadership and guidance of the tourism industry. And so there was an association. And now today there are many Hawaiians who are in uh, leadership in that upper echelon of uh, decision-making in hotel development. In fact, I think many organizations realize that that would be a good thing yeah, to have uh, more Hawaiians. Instead of just having Hawaiians uh, dancing hula or playing music or sitting behind the front desk, there was a time 30 years ago when there were classes that were held in hotels for executives, classes like, uh, like Hawaiian 101, right? We pushed back and we said, hey, you don't need classes that's going to teach non-Hawaiians how to be Hawaiian. <laughs> you just need to hire Hawaiians and put Hawaiians in there and have and help uh, train Hawaiians to run these hotels, right? Hmm. We found that Hawaiians are very sensitive, more sensitive, are better decision makers. And the community is, by and large, better able to make decisions that are going to benefit the community. We all knew that a lot of the money that's uh, made in, in, in tourism doesn't stay in Hawaii. There's a lot of leakage, you know, I can't remember the exact figure, but maybe uh, 10 cents of every dollar stays back in Hawaii and, wow. and benefits uh, the community, something like that. Yeah. But I hope there's new statistics uh, floating around uh, today. So that was one of the things that happened. We've seen some hotel development and it's very sad, you know, the impact on the cultural uh, places, sacred places and, impact on cultural resources like burial sites has slowed down a little bit. There's, there's not too much left to, to develop, but there's always challenges. Every year there's challenges to, to open up lands. And we have on the Waianae side of the island of Oahu, where I'm from, we have a very pristine valleys that uh, we know that developers and investors are sitting on properties in those valleys, just waiting for the right politics and the right uh, timing to develop, right? So we know that, you know, there's a lot of liquidity, a lot of money, a lot of investment out there 
And it's just so hard for the community to stay on top of where the developments are. But there's a lot that uh, needs, needs to be done. And we really would like to see a major tourism conference in Hawaii. It would be a big help for us. And I, you know, if we could just pull that together, that would, I think that would be helpful to everybody, not just Hawaii. But this is an issue that affects the whole world, global tourism, mass travel. And so if, I think that, that that would be my push is to, let's come back to Hawaii. When we did that 30 years ago, we had Native American Indians come, flew in, and we, we had a big gathering, and everybody went out for a couple of days to visit the places where there was tourism impact and to speak with families. And then when everybody came back, everybody discussed what they saw. And that's how the tourism document came to be. It came from participants who came to Hawaii and went out and saw and walked the land and spoke with the people and came back and shared what they saw. A lot of the participants who came back then were also struggling with issues in their own home and had a lot to share. So that was just a great opportunity to, to start a movement. And we've stayed in touch with a lot of those folks for a long time. And, uh, and that tourism document went beyond just tourism and went on to look at the history of the dispossession and the exploitation of Hawaiian culture and the people. And went on to other things that became collaborations on social justice issues. And you mentioned All Is Not Well in Paradise. I was tapped along with a, a woman to do an East Coast speaking tour, uh, Hawaiian sovereignty speaking tour. So we went to New York, all the major cities to talk about Hawaii. And, and that was the theme, All Is Not Well in Paradise. And that's a big one. That's a big one for us because everybody just smiles when you mention Hawaii, right? Everybody has these wonderful uh, images and experiences of going to Hawaii. Hawaii is a wonderful place, but all is not well in paradise. That's such a hard message to communicate uh, to people on the outside. Mm. And so that's a big one. That's a big one. All is not well in, in paradise. Hawaii is, you know, among many places uh, in the world often considered by the tourism industry or tourists as paradise, right? What connection, if any, do you see between these sort of modern notions of pristine nature and the notions of paradise that come out of the Bible or the Christian world? And I ask in part because I have very little background or understanding as, as far as the book is concerned. Well, it's a good question. Uh, many of the churches in the 1980s were already doing theology on mass travel and global tourism, right? And theology on tourism is, is really a great, great study. And in those days, we would talk about how the global tourism and uh, mass travel it came out of the violence of World War II, right? Mm -hmm. the, violence of war and defense contractors and the creating of machines that would move soldiers around and bomb cities. Mm. And August 6th, we just uh, commemorate here in Hawaii the, the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And every year we have ceremonies in, in Chinatown. We do have a peace bell that's rung 
to remember that uh, very tragic uh, period in, in, in history. So that beginning in the evaluation of tourism with the violence of uh, war and conflict is very important to, to look at and how all of all of that machinery was uh, transformed into making money for uh, a few multinational corporations and so on and so forth and the move and, and the continue to move military around right mm. but uh, the other part of that was the idea that how are we promoting the idea of travel and, and tourism there's just a lot a lot of uh, hedonistic type of lustful types of motivations that are being catered to right mm. and that people are traveling just to get their rocks off or uh, traveling uh, just to get away from something, traveling just so they can be something different in another place. So a lot of very selfish reasons for uh, traveling. And so the ideas of uh, pilgrimage, traveling as in terms of pilgrimage, right? Uh, religious pilgrimage, spiritual journey, which has a very different set of behaviors and expectations and responsibilities, right? So you have spiritual uh, journey, pilgrimage, and these are the kind of ideas that, that, that need to be fostered, right? You know, a lot of people, they hear about the impact of tourism in, in Hawaii, and they, they say, oh, we don't want to go to Hawaii, right? And, wow. and, and, and if the Hawaiians are like, no, come, come, come and, come and visit us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point, right? If you're not going to make any connection, spiritual and yeah don't come but you know people it's a very complex idea but more so the ideas of uh, why do you have to get away right what are you running away from right you know mm. even that that has a lot of uh, question and the idea of a vacation right i mean that you know what's a lot of people in asia a lot of people in the world don't have it there's no concept for vacation right you work 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 right and then you know, the workers of the world, man, they don't have vacations, right? But anyway, so it's almost a sin to have that as a part of a Christian uh, philosophy that we have to take a vacation every year. I mean, we should be moderating and pacing ourselves all year round. I mean, so vacation come becomes a time to what, do things that we wouldn't be able to do at home. We have some of the clergy in the Marshall Island, one of the Pacific Islands would, would always joke about going to going to the Philippines and just doing the once a year, go, go to the Philippines and we can do whatever we want in the Philippines because it's beyond the 100 mile limit of our island. right? So wow. we're not bound by any of the restrictions in Hawaii. A lot of the Hawaiians go to Las Vegas. We got a lot of big Hawaiian community in Las Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. Now, so that's the analysis, the theology that people need, need to look at and how does that mesh with, with the biblical faith and tradition and uh, you know jesus didn't take a vacation but he did go up into the mountain and he would pray mm. he would commune with nature right the germans were were feeling very guilty about tourism and that's why the churches got involved wow. they were seeing a lot of germans traveling for things that they didn't feel was spiritually appropriate or theologically appropriate or, or part of the faith tradition right Mm. And so you have a lot of Germans, Europeans supporting the sex industry in, in Thailand and Korea. And so that's a big industry. Then there was a lot of child prostitution was going on in the 80s as well, right? And a lot of the Christian 
countries were feeding into that from the United States and Europe. And so that's a big one. We, that really needs to be reevaluated. So the, the phrase end of tourism, yeah, there's a need for spiritual journey and, and pilgrimage and things that are more human and involve more interaction and the sharing of ideas and aspirations and the vision for peace and harmony, I think, is what many of us would really support. Right? Certainly. So I'd like to do a kind of rapid fire uh, series of questions regarding some of the quotes that I pulled from your essay, All Is Not Well in Paradise. So this essay was written in 1993, so 30 years have passed. I'd like to speak to some of these quotes or, or mention them briefly and simply ask you if what you wrote still applies today, if it's more true than it was 30 years ago. And you can certainly feel free to elaborate if you like. Yeah. So the first quote arrives as such. Contrary to the claims of its promoters, tourism, the biggest industry in Hawaii, has not benefited the poor and the oppressed Native Hawaiian people. Tourism is not an Indigenous practice, nor has it been initiated by the Native Hawaiian people. More true, still true, or has that changed? Oh, yeah, I think more true today, yeah. We have uh, more homeless, more Hawaiians in prison, more Hawaiians on the, that are poor and sick, you know. Yes, yeah, so I would say very, very true, yeah. Okay. The next one arrives as such. Tourism is a new form of exploitation. As a consequence, the Native Hawaiian people suffer the most. Their culture has been increasingly threatened. Their beaches and even their sacred sites have been taken over or intruded upon in order to build tourist resorts and related developments. More true, still true. I would say more true. We have a uh parks that would be frequented by Hawaiian families on the beach, on the coastal areas that were once when Hawaii was Hawaii was a place where Hawaiian families would go seasonally to fish and to spend time with family. But Hawaiians can't do that anymore because most coastal areas are now owned by the state are converted into parks where when a hotel development goes in or a coastal golf course access to the to traditional fishing grounds are are made very limited mm. so during the pandemic we have beaches that have been shut down and we have places that have uh have not been open for over a year now but we are seeing uh, more restrictions on access to traditional places where hawaiians uh, still gather and mm. fish <clears throat> and so that assertion is more true today than it was back then. Yeah. Wow. The next one is tourism brings and expands the evil of an economy which perpetuates the poverty of Native Hawaiian people and which leads to sexual and domestic violence and substance abuse among the Native Hawaiian people. In addition, sexism and racism are closely interlinked with tourism. More true still true or has changed since then? You know, I'd say it's more true. We have a, a prison system uh, that uh, that went through a major study about six, seven years ago. 
you know, it was a study on uh, Native Hawaiians in the prison and criminal justice system. Part of what the study said that, the, that there's tremendous racism and inequity in the prison and criminal justice system that Hawaiians are being uh, profiled and targeted. And so we have a lot of Hawaiians in prison. And then once you get into prison, you stay in the prison. You know, even though you're only sentenced to five years, you'll end up in there for 20 years mm-hmm. because of the way the prison system works. And some of that is directly related to the fear that society has towards uh, keeping the tourism industry protected from crime and property damage. And we've done studies, and uh, studies have been funded on uh, the impact of mega resorts on Hawaiian communities and family disillusion conflicts go rise up. Increase in, in drug abuse goes up. The numbers are not good whenever a big uh, development goes up in a community. Our prisons and our homelessness and our folks, young and old, who are in drug rehab programs, which are filled to capacity, uh, these are signs and indications that things aren't getting better. They're, they've been getting worse. Mm. If you here on the Waianae Coast, all of our parks get filled with people who are homeless or houseless. And there's just a, a rotation of evictions. Mm. Now, you know, we have the most beautiful beaches in Hawaii, but this is the scenario in almost every Hawaiian community. People who are houseless, having to live on the beaches and being moved around, you know, maybe uh, once every three or four months being evicted and having to go down to the coast to find another place or under a bridge. This is the life now. This is a cultural violence that is accepted now. And I I would say uh, a good part of that is is due to the idea that tourism is helping somehow, but it's not not helping as the uh, dominant economic industry for Hawaii. It's not really uh, of any benefit to Hawaiians. It's a lot worse than it was when we did that assessment back then. Wow. This this really uh, succinct and incredible essay that you wrote will be available to our listeners in the show notes and the website. After 30 years, all is still not well in paradise and things have gotten, as you said, progressively worse. You have the community getting progressively worse. But then on the other side, you have those that are the, you know, cheerleaders of the industry doing quite well. Mm. And then now we have just a, a lot of absentee landowners. So, you know, it just kind of opens the door to everything. I have a question about the last year or so in Hawaii and the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. So in my experience living here in, in Oaxaca and in Southern Mexico, like most places in the world, we went into a serious and, and enduring lockdown. Being primarily a tourist town, it was an incredible sight. The streets were closed. The the tourists and the tourism was gone, at least temporarily. People had an opportunity, local people anyways, to remember what it was like or what it could be like to live in a place not dominated by foreign entitlement, we'll say. So I'm wondering, what was your experience in the last year regarding the pandemic, the the lockdowns, the fallout, and then now what very much seems to be uh, 
to put it poetically, a viral return of tourism to the islands. Yeah, 30 years ago, there were five to six million visitors coming to Hawaii every year. And the Hawaii Visitors Bureau, which is a nonprofit entity that's supported by the government and primarily the tourism interests in Hawaii, were projecting 11 million tourists by uh, the year 2000. So they were projecting a doubling of tourism from, from the late 1980s. And we couldn't fathom what it would be like to have 11 million tourists. I mean, in 1980s, we, we thought we had too many tourists coming to Hawaii at that time, right? Well, for our listeners, approximately how many residents were there in Hawaii at the time? Yeah, at the time, I think about a million, if not wow. less. You take a small island like Kauai, population maybe 50,000, and most, and maybe 800,000, uh, 900,000 on Oahu. So 11 million visitors. Now, about, about 20 years ago, we had an opportunity to sit in on a meeting of city and county municipal planners on, from all of the islands. And at that time, the assessments that were coming in from all of the planners was that the most major infrastructure in each island, like sewage, water, electricity, roads, uh, even schools, most infrastructure to support a community was 20, 30 years behind in terms of maintenance and in terms of uh, upgrading and you know all those kind of things, right? But, but the most interesting statement was that no one had any idea how, how we're ever going to catch up. Mm. And in fact, there was some certainty that we're never going to be able to catch up with what the infrastructure needs are for the communities on all the islands. Yeah. And that's still true today. I mean, it's just uh, survival. Now, tur- now, tourism always gets the infrastructure that they need, you know, the roads and the in the, the water and the, the harbors. So the infrastructure is a big impact. It gets left to the city and the politicians to handle. But of course, they, they just push all that money away. And I, I think a lot of it goes into the development of the economy. And a lot of it goes to tourism to make sure that tourism stays strong, right? The community gets less and less every, each year, yeah. Hmm. I was on the island of Kauai, and when Hurricane Iniki hit, and many in our community, after we were able to put things back together, in the first three months, uh, a lot of people lost their, their homes. There was a lot of uh, work that needed to be done to clear the roads. But the people came together. It was a good relief effort that the community really worked together. But the people were really uh, warmed to the idea that the beaches were free, that there weren't many tourists on the island anymore. So same with the pandemic, with the less traffic and having the beaches open again, it's it's like a breath of fresh air. It's a good feeling to be able to have space and to have time to think and, and, and not, not have to worry about traffic and all those things. Yeah, that's a big wake-up call. Yeah, certainly I can... I can imagine, and we'll see, I guess, what happens now as measures and contingency plans start to, and restrictions start to be loosened. We'll say that when I was on Kauai, I worked a lot with three churches that I was a pastor. 
many of uh, my members worked in the tourism industry, desk clerks, rent-a-car agencies, back office, food and beverage. And the, the, the stories of being mistreated by people visiting from faraway lands, uh, just the rudeness. I'm not saying all visitors are like that. Right. But, but if you're working in the industry, it's, it has a toll. Many Hawaiians uh, that I used to spend a lot of time within the churches, they really didn't like working. And I'll make that statement. I mean, so just imagine every aspect of tourism where Hawaiians are working. And it's hard spiritually and uh, emotionally for people to work in the tourism industry. It's a very demanding industry for people who are having that face-to-face contact with visitors. It can be very tough, very tough. Mm. I worked in, in the hospitality industry in Toronto, Canada for 10 years, and then here in southern Mexico in the tourism industry for five. And it, it just doesn't change the expectation and entitlement of getting to be on the other side of the table in the sense that most people are serving others throughout their week. And their vacation is somehow a way in which they get to be on the receiving end of being served, right? But yeah, of course, yeah. we used to say the new plantation industry. So how do you, this, this is where we come back to the theology about travel and uh, what our behaviors and our protocols are. And reciprocity is a word that comes up over and over again. Today, the word ho'okipa is used as a word for hospitality, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it implies that when somebody comes off the plane, you got to give them a lay, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, for dance hula, when the people are coming out of, out of the gate, right? To play some Hawaiian music, right? But in the old, old, old days, actually, ho'okipa was a word that had more meaning than the word aloha, okay? But aloha is a very very powerful word you don't use that with everybody you say with your grandmother your, your, your family right but you want to use it with somebody you don't even know who's coming off a plane right but you know anyway but whole keeper is a word that had even more meaning in the old days so in the pacific you would go from island to island right visiting people and maybe go 100 miles or 1000 miles and and just just look for a place to live but whenever you saw an island you'd be very careful how you would approach that island okay you'd, you'd want to make a good impression and you want to be very respectful okay you would bring would bring something some gift and you would go and announce yourself and share tell who you are and, and then we would say you'd bring a whole kupo a gift and you would also understand that there's always a, a leader on an island or an elder, right? So you would ask to see that person, right? You don't want to create any problems. So you got to make sure you go to the right, the right person first. And you just pay your respects. If you're coming from an island that just had a hurricane, right? You, you might ask for help. But it would help if you had developed the relationship prior to that, right? And so whole kipo was the word that meant reciprocity, where you wanted to make connections and you wanted to have good relationships, even if there wasn't anything that you needed, right? You would do that because one day you might need help, right? And so you want to have those relationships 
in, in other places. But today's tourism, there's, there's none of that. The people, people, you know, there's no expectations. People just come. So there, there's no incentive to be nice to anybody, right? No incentive to, to be kind. But anyway, that's part of the thinking that, that needs to be done. And people need to be educated sometimes to, how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's in, that's incredible, really. And that practice of Hawaiian hospitality, as you referred to it as, as reciprocity, comes up against the kind of corrupted or perverted hospitality that exists in the, in the quote, hospitality industry. So I'd like to, if, if we can, touch on the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center and your work. You mentioned a little earlier that the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center was formed in part out of the tourism conference in Hawaii in 1989, that it was formed as a result of the deliberation and the, the consequences of tourism at the time. On, on the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation website, that's written that the organization began as a progressive faith-based coalition in the 1980s, a project of the Hawaiian Council of Churches, addressing Indigenous and Native Hawaiian sovereignty and governance issues, responsible tourism, environmental justice, and peace and nonviolence through direct action, organizing, community education, and advocacy. Could you... Kahu, offer our listeners a little of how the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center started and how it's evolved since then. So in the 80s, we were already wrestling with tourism issues on all of the islands. And there were people that were wanting to do something. And I was on Kauai, but I grew up on Oahu. And we've had big issues with tourism and development and fighting development and militarization. We have a valley Right down, my family is from that valley, and everybody was displaced from that valley. Military took over the valley, wow, and, uh, and, and did did bombing in the valley. We would hear the bombing at, at, at night and see the training, and, uh, and then there'd be fires in the valley. And this was a valley that uh, was a, was a uh, old fishing village in the old days. So I was on Kauai, and Hawaiians were standing in front of the bulldozers on hotel developments. Uh, the 10 years that I was there in the late 80s. And one of the first projects, and this was my first church I served was on Kauai. Within the first year, I was asked to help out with a hotel that was trying to add another wing to its development, but it would impact a, a sacred site, a city of refuge. And actually, this area had, had five heiau temples. Uh, it's a remarkable cultural historic area. And this city of refuge, or Pu'ohonua, the mouth of the Wailua River, was being impacted by, already being impacted by tourists staying in the hotel. And they'd just come out the back door and walk through the sacred site and wow. leave uh, beer cans and trash. And, and so that was number one. But then they were going to build another wing to the hotel that was going to destroy the integrity of the system of heiaus in this valley. Well, when Hawaiians built heiaus in an area, it, they, there was often a view corridor between the different sites. So there may be at some point they would light fires and you could see what was going on. 
But uh, this wing was Im- impacting a, a view quarter between this city of refuge or a place of uh, refuge and a navigational hayow across the road. And uh, so anyway, we won on that issue, went to the state legislature, pushed on that issue. And I became the, the, the president of the first curatorship of a sacred site on the island of, of Hawaii. And some, some of these curatorships were just being established by the state of Hawaii because a lot of historic sites were being impacted and, and they just really needed to protect these sites. So that's how I got started. And it was kind of odd for a Christian minister to be protecting these sacred sites, some of which were sacrificial heiau. But, you know, these were just like sacred sites in the Old Testament, right? I mean, they were part of our history, right? And so I did get in a little bit of trouble when we ended up having to take care of all these heiaus. We formed all island coalition of Hawaiian leaders and church leaders. We, so what we wanted to do is to bring more church leaders into, into relationship and collaboration with, with the activists. And there was quite a separation over the years due to the missionaries. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of education to do with the people in the, in the churches. And so we formed the uh, Hawaii Ecumenical Coalition, the HEC, and it was a project of the Hawaii Council of Churches. And then later, a group of us decided to take on the tourism issue in a big way. We became the Hawaii Ecumenical Coalition on Tourism. So this organization produced the Hawaii Declaration, but it also pushed out and tried to implement all of the recommendations that came out of the tourism declaration. So you just can't have a conference and you have all these recommendations and you don't do anything. Somebody's got to do all the recommendations, right? So since I was the co-chair, it felt to me, I got to follow through. So we had a committee. We just went down the list. One of the first things on the list was, was go to all the churches in Hawaii and ask them to apologize wow. for, for their role in wow. the overthrow of Hawaii. And if they, if they weren't involved in overthrow, well, how come you're not saying anything now, right? So so we did. We divided up. And I went to the Episcopal Church. And I went to the United Church of Christ. And we asked them to inventory their church lands because, you know, a lot of the churches had a lot of church lands. And some of those lands, stolen land, a lot of the lands stolen after the uh, overthrow. That's well documented. So we tried to push the churches and get them involved. And then we started doing a lot of community organizing, uh, direct action uh, organizing, using Kingian and Gandhian techniques and strategies. And so we started getting arrested. So we've been arrested. Uh, you know, I've been arrested about 12 times uh, from those days. And you know, we don't want to get arrested, but sometimes that's the only way you can get attention and uh, move the agenda forward. And so we were already studying and, and doing nonviolent direct action organizing. And as a church uh, organization, uh, we really wanted to begin working with the Hawaiian community and, and others on uh, developing a, a movement and organizing slowly and looking at not just working with Hawaiians, but developing uh, the sympathy of the larger majority. You know, in any social justice, uh, social change movement, if you want big social change, you have to work on the sympathy of the larger majority, right? Mm. So part of that involved using Gandhi and, and, and King, Martin Luther King, right? 
So we would go to all the Martin Luther King parades and we get involved with the Gandhi groups that were in Hawaii and we did all that networking. And then we got arrested at the airport. This was a big tourism issue for us. Yeah. So in, I think it was 1999, a group of us, we had an all islands gathering. We decided we were going to do an action on the airport. And I, you know, I set that up. I think 14 of us were arrested and, and the airport wasn't sure we were coming, but we came and uh, they were quite confused and didn't know who was going to arrest us, whether it was the police department or the marshal's office or the Department of Public Safety or the airport anti-terrorism unit, you know, so we actually made it all the way into the control tower and the elevator was opening, going up and down. Finally, we got arrested and it was a good one. We had some other activities, actions after that, and it was all very, very peaceful. But I think the next year, a couple of years later, 911 happened and the Twin Towers went down. And we're still working on this issue. We're getting ready to go back and do a, another action. But after 911, we felt it was best to, to not have anybody get arrested mm. because, you know, you have homeland, homeland security now and everybody was quite tense. Mm. And so we decided about that time we, we were asked to teach some courses at the University of Hawaii. And this, this is a story is almost over now, but. We started teaching Gandhi and King and Lilio Kalani. We developed that class, Gandhi, King, Lilio Kalani at the University of Hawaii. And then the power of nonviolence, nonviolent political alternatives. And so the reason we wanted to do this was we felt that this is going to be a long haul now after 911. And we wanted to study all of the social change uh, movements in the world, especially uh, Indian country. Because of the 500 years of discovery Holocaust, Native Americans, indigenous people all over the world have learned how to do nonviolent direct action organizing, but in, in cultural ways, right? They have a lot of experience. So we did it. We studied the Western models, Gandhi King. And we, you know, so we wanted to study everything. So that's one university. We kind of said, well, let's, let's, let's put our heads down for a while and see what's happening and watch watch for the good issues to come forward. And that's when we changed our name to the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. Mm. Okay. So that was our big shift. And we had just come back from the Vatican. We went to ask the Pope to rescind the papal bull of 1492. Wow. Right. And, you know, we ended up talking with the Pope didn't want to see us. So we ended up talking to the Cardinal Ratzinger, who eventually became the Pope. But we've been commemorating the papal bull in Honolulu for years. So when we came back from the Vatican, uh, that was uh, shortly after the anniversary of 1992, a couple of years after that. Wow. We decided to open a peace center in Chinatown. So we said, well, you're going to do peace work. You got to have a peace center. So we started putting peace centers on the ground. People would say, what's a peace center? Well, what do you got? You need help with peace? Let's talk about it, man. So we would just do peace work, open up these centers and just do peace work in in the community that we were in and just look at what was going on and work with the people and, and organize, right? So anyway, that's our history, Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. But one of the themes that we've always worked on is uh, this reconciliation uh, with the uh, Hawaiians and the churches, 
And, and, and this whole mandate came out of a tourism declaration that we would ask the churches to apologize. So we haven't given up on that. We've we visited every denomination in Hawaii, most of the major denominations. And a lot of them were very receptive. Today, we've got two, two denominations that have apologized and redress issues. We've spent a lot of time uh, trying to organize projects that are related to doing some reconciliation between churches and Native Hawaiians. We did a Cleveland project. For six years, we went to Caldwell, New Jersey, where the Sopranos, uh, the guys from, right? Caldwell, New Jersey is where President Grover Cleveland was born. Mm, yeah. And his, his cradle is still there. His uh, house is still there where he was born. So, that we, so we decided we would make that our, our landing in New Jersey. In six years, we went and visited the historic site and met with the people of Caldwell, New Jersey. After the second year, they started holding luau's for us, right? This is our way to educate them on Hawaii. Nobody knew anything about Hawaii or the overthrow. And then the second year, we were invited to go to New York, where President Grover Cleveland was the sheriff of New York, and then the mayor and then the governor. So we, we did our rounds there for six, five years. But in that first year, we made contact with the grandson of President Grover Cleveland. And why was so important about Grover Cleveland? Well, he was a supporter of the queen when she was overthrown. So we had a great project and grandson came to Hawaii. We put him on a surfboard in Makaha and had him paddle on a Hawaiian canoe and took him to a luau. He ate, every, he ate everything. Right. He was just a great guy, George Cleveland. And through him, we started projects in New York, New Jersey, and in Hawaii, just educating people. That's reconciliation work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was able to visit the schools in Hawaii and uh, church schools. And so that's reconciliation work. And uh, right now, we've got this resolution, uh, UCC resolution that's been passed on ending, ending the war. And so we organized to, to get everybody to read that, to make a statement. And we're saying that we need to end the war in Hawaii, the occupation that's been going on in Hawaii. But we want to go beyond that. We want to end all wars, all wars in the world, all wars today that have been ongoing for a long time, but, but all war. So that's our, that's our, our most current project. Mm. And, and tourism is a war, right? Tourism is a war that we're fighting too, right? <clears throat> so we're going to follow up on the churches. We're, yeah, we're hoping you're going to help us uh, follow up on the churches and uh, bring this issue back to life. It's a tough issue. People have a hard time seeing yeah, the relevance, but it's very relevant, very relevant. Certainly. Well, I wanted to ask you, for our listeners' sake and for my sake, what do you think is the relationship between justice and reconciliation in Hawaii? These two terms are often used together, not just in Hawaii, but in many places around the world where these two things are being sought after, especially by Indigenous people. Why do you think we find these two concepts together? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to find my website, our old website, because we did a resolution in 1994. In that resolution, there's history, and there is a theology section that talks about justice and reconciliation. Yeah, but you, you just can't have reconciliation. You got to have justice. Okay, those those you got to have. And, and, and 
And hopefully you have justice first, then you do reconciliation, right? But nothing is ever as simple as it, it seems. Everything's quite complicated. But you got to have justice and reconciliation. Those have to be tied together. Yeah. Now, a lot of times you can't have justice, right? Somebody cuts off your brother's arm, right? Mm-hmm. You can have reconciliation, but you're not going to get his arm back, right? But you, you still got to do do something related to justice, right? And uh, <clears throat> so justice and reconciliation, there's some good theology there. Stolen Nation Resolution, it's on the website. Then there's also a, a sermon by Terry Kawata in one of our events. And I think it's on it's in that website as well. And he talks about justice and reconciliation, how important that does. And he talks about it from the point of view of uh, someone whose family, and he was also incarcerated or put in a internment camp as a Japanese as a Japanese-American, a lot of Japanese-Americans were put in uh, internment camps, and there was a justice and reconciliation process uh, for them, too. But it's interesting to study uh, the relationship between justice and reconciliation. Now, that's a simple answer, but what I wanted to share with you, what Jesus says, if you go to the altar, and you're bringing a gift to the altar, and you have every intention to worship God and to do something honorific. And, but then Jesus says, if you remember that you have a grudge against your brother, right? Okay. He said, go and reconcile with your brother, right? Go and reconcile with your brother. What, what does that mean, right? Well, in the Hawaiian language, the word used for reconcile is ho'olaulea, ho'olaulea. Now, ho'olaulea, you know, means to make peace, but it can also mean to make joy, you know, make joy with with your brother that you have to reconcile with, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a form that, that, you know, try integrating that with justice and reconciliation. Sometimes it's, it's not a one for one, eye for eye kind of a thing, right? It's more human than that. It's got to be deeper than material or physical things, right? So, you know, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, make make peace, make joy. Yeah, it's got some deeper meanings, but at least we want to make joy with those that we we may have hurt. You know, and mm-hmm. that's not an easy thing to do. That's probably harder than justice. Justice is probably easier, right? Because mm-hmm. you can just do something, but you still don't have the relationship, right? But making joy is is much much deeper and much much harder. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to make peace with someone, at least I think in the way that I understand it, or that I've been taught to understand it, is to find a point between two worlds that induces or implicates the absence of war or the absence of conflict, this notion of peace as as those things. But joy speaks to something much deeper. It's not just the stalemate or the tolerance of the other, but the acceptance, perhaps, and a willful or willing collaboration between worlds. And perhaps in this case, culture, this is often something that I've seen referred to in what very little I I understand about these worlds within religious communities, interculturality or intercultural uh, worldviews. For better or worse, this is often something that's also applied to the promotional or marketing strategies of tourism companies inviting people to learn 
about other cultures or to engage in a responsible or sustainable tourism. But it often ends up being fairly superficial in the sense where people might learn that the word aloha means hello or it's a greeting, when in fact, as you said, it has a, has a much deeper meaning rooted in uh, a distinct and diverse Hawaiian culture that many tourists either don't see or are hidden from. The hula marketing, as you put it in your essay. So I guess my next question is, do you think that what I'm referring to as interculturality and perhaps what you're referring to as reconciliation, do you think that these things can arise through tourism or are they incompatible? Yeah, I think you need another name. Tourism has its own the def- definition now. And uh, so with that current understanding of definition, I don't, I don't think it's possible to create a, a new world with using that term and what that term means today. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because you have uh, so much in- inequity built into that word and, and very little responsibility. You have communities that are being impacted it's, it, by tourism by that word, by the, the concepts, by the players and the structures. of So I think you do need a different set of terms and models and uh, ways of uh, thinking about the way people travel and, and how people are living in the world now, especially after pandemic. How, how does tourism make sense after the pandemic? And what are the, the needs that, that arise uh, as a result of the pandemic Related to travel, I said when Hurricane Iniki hit Kauai, all the hotels went down. So a lot of a lot of our local community uh, workers were were not working. Of course, we didn't have electricity or water for for three or four months, maybe more. But our group was able to pull together a uh, tourism conference on the island of Kauai. It was titled something like Shattered Dreams and New Hopes. Yeah, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But there was a good plan that came up from the community that was community-based, right? People were really excited about that. And that's what needs to happen, right? I mean, you almost want to take out the big guys at this point, right? It's like South Africa. You, you can't just reform an oppressive government. You have to replace it. You got to... You got to overthrow it. Something has been so oppressive and so unjust mm-hmm. and uh, so evil for so many years. Uh, you can't you can't reform it, but you just have to create something new. And I, I think that's what we tried to do on Kauai. But I think after pandemic, you've got the same dynamic going on. It's a time to think about rebuilding. How would you rebuild or at least start the conversation? How would you uh, rebuild? But we're projecting that yeah, you know, the global industry is is run by a group of people sitting in a boardroom around the table, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, it is. You know, there's a couple of guys um, running the tourism industry worldwide, right? How how would you do that differently? So, how would you divide up the unity that they have that's being used to exploit people all over the world and make money, right? How would you? break that group up so that they don't have that kind of power again. Mm-hmm. Now, the Catholic Church was very, very critical of uh, the global economy. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of churches were critical 
of the development of the global economy. And, and sure enough, the global economy was, was very, very bad for the world because that's the entity that is controlling the development of uh, tourism in the world, not communities, not people who have special relationships with the mountains and the rivers. Right? Mm. And, uh, so, so it's a big, that's a big issue. And, you know, you almost, uh, we worked with a guy from Australia who was working in Fiji and his, they had a concept that they were developing and they took two valleys in Fiji. In one valley, they would develop a tourism model that would be for the tourists, right? And the tourists could only go there in that valley. But in the next valley, all the people that lived in their own village they worked in that other valley. So in the morning, so in this village, what they did was they, they, they did an inventory of everybody who could cook, everybody that could uh, fish. And they made a list of all the talent that they had in this village. And that's how they developed the tourism arena in the next valley. They used all the people from one valley and, and developed a tourism industry that was isolated in this next valley. They wouldn't impact the community at all, right? I mean, that was an interesting model. And, you know, the idea was that you don't want these tourists running around all over the place. Just keep them in that one valley. And I thought, wow, there's some merit there, yeah? And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of like people going to Disneyland, right? Or people going to a mega resort, right? If you go to Disneyland or a mega resort that has a golf course, most, most mega resorts have golf courses, their own golf courses. And then they have homes, rich homes around the golf courses. And then they have little shopping centers, right? And then they have their own restaurants. So the tourists don't have to go anywhere, right? So they make all the money. So actually, no money, very little money goes into the community, yeah? Mm. Okay. So that's the concept of tourism that we've seen for many years, where they're protecting the visitor spending in the mega resort. And so Hawaii really doesn't get any get any benefit from the from that model. Yeah? But <clears throat> that's something to think about. And that's the kind of discussion that needs to be looked at now. So we've been speaking for a couple hours now and um very grateful for, for your time and for your willingness to, to speak on these issues. I have one more question. So if, if tourism is an extension of the colonial project, if it is by and large exploitative, then how do you think tourists themselves and tourism workers can participate in a world where justice and reconciliation are at the forefront of the meeting between cultures? I think the world is full of contradictions and the, the world has to figure out, you know, how to work together to, you know, have sustainability be a, a real hope reality. But so in that discussion about sustainability and saving the earth and uh, climate change and all that, I think the tourism discussion has a place there. Yeah? And uh, we're already hearing about how air travel is very destructive on the environment. And so there's some of that coming into this right now. Yeah? Travel should be decreased at least. And instead of just uh, looking at carbon emissions, we, we should be looking at decreasing uh, tourism emissions, right? 
and and so the, so the equity of the economic development that tourism tries to sell is really not a true picture. And mm-hmm. so so sometimes if you study in peace studies, you have like a dictatorship, right? The violence becomes cultural. It's accepted, right? And we just we just go along with it, right? Okay, that's that's what's happened with uh, tourism. But to address cultural violence in a, in a society or in a country, you got to look at the things that are like uh, pillars holding up that cultural violence. And you just got to chip away at those pillars until that cultural violence falls. Yeah, We've seen a lot of examples of, of that with women issues, right? Constant chipping away of how women have been uh, exploited and uh, not treated as equal. But yeah, I think there needs to be some stronger analysis of uh, tourism and education. Black Lives Matter in, in the United States really shifted the race question quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think it can happen with tourism. It's, tourism would be a great issue to see, uh, you know, more, more traction on that. Uh, and mm-hmm. So it's kind of crazy to believe, but when you organized the conference on tourism in 1989, I was four years old. Wow. So, you know, on behalf of our listeners, I want to offer a, a deep bow for your willingness to join us and speak to these issues. And I'd like to ask if there are any final thoughts that you'd like to share before we depart and how our listeners might learn about the over-tourism situation in Hawaii. Yeah. me and how they might find out about the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center. Well, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, we helped a a group of uh, Hawaiians that wanted to have more brown faces in high places and the hospitality, Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association. That was a good project. Everybody's got to do projects like that, right? And uh, just to bring some equity, uh, race equity, racial justice equity into the economy. You know, uh, you know, people are looking for ways to do things differently. And, yeah, there's openings and there's openings everywhere. You got to get in there. So stay in touch. And I got some good people, younger people. And, uh, yeah, it's your turn now. You were four years old, 30 years old. Now it's your turn. We're here to support you now. Yeah, well, none of this would be possible without elders like yourself. So I hope you know that. Well, thank you once again, Kahu, on behalf of our listeners for joining us today. And all of the information regarding the Pacific Justice and Reconciliation Center is uh, posted in our show notes and homework for our guests. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time in making this possible. Mm. I want to get the information out for sure. Blessings on you and your work and uh, the people you're working with. And God give you every mercy and every grace and every healing and every blessing and give you the new beginning that we're all desiring for you and your people as well thank you for listening to the end of tourism podcast if what you heard had its way with you if the arrows hit their mark click subscribe on spotify apple podcasts or wherever you're listening to go deeper join us at theendoftourism.com and follow us on social media under the handle The End of Tourism.